Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. Does it feel like a good afternoon? I'm still trying to recover from the last live broadcast. If you heard the last live broadcast, how are you doing? I mean, I, 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 I need, I need maybe counseling. I may need, I may need help. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm still trying to recover from the last live broadcast because it absolutely just, I, I, it just broke me <laughs> mentally, spiritually, emotionally. What was that? Like, I, I, I almost felt like, you know what, ladies and gentlemen, that is the last broadcast I'm ever going to do. That is it. Like that, by the end of that, I just wanted to kind of just say that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm washing my hands. I am retiring from theology, from theological podcasting, from being a pastor. I'm leaving the world of theology, of Christianity. I'm just leaving it all because I don't know what that was. You, you need to go back and listen to it. We'll talk about it more here in just a second. But good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, August the 8th, 2023. It is currently 2.34 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. All right. Someone just said, looking forward to catching up in the chat. I, I, I... I would say you should not look forward to catching up. I, uh, you would, it would be better just go swim with some sharks. I don't know. Go, I don't know. Go lay down with some rattlesnakes. Anything would probably be better than, than catching up on that. But ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome everyone. This is our ongoing series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. We have done well over 90 hours of teaching, uh, probably over 100 hours now, of teaching on the proper distinction between law and gospel. And I do know that some of you have emailed me and told me, I'm done listening to you because you keep saying the same thing over and over and over. It's redundant and, and had some very harsh criticisms for the series. And that's okay. That's okay. That's fine. Some of you have strongly disagreed with my attempt to distinguish between law and gospel. Some of you have strongly disagreed. I understand. Some of you disagree. Some of you believe that it's redundant. But I will tell you this. The last live broadcast that we did on the J.D. Greer sermon, I think it was part three, that was the absolute greatest example of why we're doing this series on law and gospel. That was one of the most insane sermons I have ever heard. It was a complete and total obliteration of any distinct, drawing any distinction between law and gospel. And I said it in the, in the last live broadcast. I'm going to say it again. Every, the, the part that went viral was J.D. Greer supposedly rebuking his church. That, I don't even know why that went viral. The entire sermon was an obliteration of the distinction between law and gospel. In fact, the entire sermon was preaching a false gospel. In fact, I will go so far to say that this gospel J.D. Greer preached is a false gospel. It's anathema. And that I, I would tell anyone who even thinks about going to that church, they should leave because it's false doctrine, false gospel. It's not even Christianity. That's how far I would go. 
I, I, I am still just utterly shocked. But that sermon review, that's why we're doing the long gospel series. That's why I've spent all of these hours trying to help you understand what law is, what gospel is, and trying to help you understand when you read the Bible, you've got to be able to identify that verse is law. Its job is to show me my sin, condemn me, and then gospel passages are there to show me what Christ did for me. Law tells me what I'm supposed to do, and it condemns me. Gospel tells me what Christ did, and it comforts me. But so many times Christians read the Bible, take law passages, and then try to connect it to the gospel. Or try to say, hey, this this is how you prove you're saved. The law can never be used to prove that I'm saved because it was not designed to prove that I was saved. It was designed to prove that I need to be saved. It was designed to prove that I'm a sinner and I cannot obey it and I need Christ. I mean, oh, I see. In some cases, I feel like I've said the same thing a thousand times, but in other ways, I think a thousand times of saying it is not enough because the entire evangelical Christian world is operating on from a law perspective, not a gospel perspective. The, even though they pay lip service. In that very sermon that we reviewed from J.D. Greer, he paid lip service. Your sins are forgiven. You're saved by grace. And, you know, your the blood of Christ forgives all of your sins. He said all of the right words. And then there was a very big, however, there was a very big, well, I know I said that, but let's, let's look at this. Other, and then he brings in law, 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 law. And it was an absolute train wreck. In fact, train wreck is not even, I need to apologize to train wrecks. Train wrecks is not as bad as that. So I, mean, I need to apologize to every catastrophe that's ever occurred because I should not compare that sermon to any catastrophe because I need to apologize to the catastrophes. That if, if that, and that you think I'm using hyperbole, but I am not. But that's why we're doing this series. So let's see how far we can get today. All right. So let's put everything back in place, right? Currently, we're doing a law and gospel redo. Why are we doing a law and gospel redo? It's because we made it about 80 something hours into the series and I felt like that I lost the narrative. I lost the plot somehow and that people were not connecting it. People were not getting it. And it was very disheartening to feel that way. So I kind of, uh, I need to, I, someone's laughing at my, I said, I need to apologize to train wrecks. I do. I need to apologize to, to any catastrophe, right? But, all right, I digress. Let's go back through this. So I felt like I lost it a little bit, right? So I, I was about ready to give up. And then I thought, you know, what do I do? What do I, I got to restart this series. And then at the same time, perfect timing, issues ETC. Lutheran radio program also is a podcast. You should subscribe to it today. Issues ETC. Subscribe to the podcast. They started a series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Oh, lo and behold, they were using the same book. God's no and God's yes. The proper distinction between law and gospel by C.F.W. Walther. Oh, that's good. This book contains 25 theses on the proper distinction between law and gospel. I'm like, okay. So let's just kind of a sense do a restart, a a reset, a redo. We'll start back at the beginning and we'll use their program to kind of get us back on track. Now, of course, it's a radio program, so they have commercials. So we're just taking little tiny segments and utilizing that to get us back through these theses. We stopped at like theses number 11 or 12. Well, 
so far in our redo, they're on thesis number four, which reads, the true knowledge of the distinction between the law and the gospel is not only a glorious light affording the correct understanding of the entire Holy Scriptures, but without this knowledge, Scripture is and remains a sealed book. This thesis makes the claim that unless you understand the proper distinction between law and gospel, if you do, until you understand the proper distinction between law and gospel, you will not understand the scripture. The scripture will remain a closed book. You cannot understand scriptures correctly until you understand the proper distinction between law and gospel. And the last episode I just did reviewing that sermon by J.D. Greer, I would say that proves that he does not understand the scripture because clearly he does not understand the proper distinction between law and gospel. I know that's a big claim, but that's the claim that C.F.W. Walther made in the book, God's No and God's Yes. So we're going to go back to Issues ETC. This is the third segment in this episode that we are reviewing. It's probably going to be a relatively short segment. They've done the first two segments. This is the third. Then they'll take a break and have a fourth. So this is, I think this is going to be a short one and the fourth one will be short. So we're just going to let them see where they're going to take this. Their discussion on thesis number four has been a little frustrating a little bit because um, I don't feel like they did do a little a good job maybe offering us some church history that it seems like for the first maybe five centuries of church history. There was at least a, at least it appears to be a, a proper distinction between law and gospel. And it started fading in the fifth century and it was almost gone by the sixth century. They mentioned, they, and they quoted some church fathers and we had our big discussion about church fathers. But, um, clearly from the sixth century on, it seems that the proper distinction of law and gospel kind of just went away. And then you could go to Melanchthon and Luther that maybe restores it. And then after the Reformation, it was lost again. By the time you get to basically American Christianity, <laughs> we, nobody even knows what you're talking about if you talk about the proper distinction between law and gospel. If you don't believe me, just start asking people in your church. All right. Okay. Are you ready? So let's go back to Issues ETC. You should subscribe to their podcast. I'm telling you, Issues ETC, please subscribe to their podcast. Please, 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 please. I don't agree with all of their theology because obviously they're Lutheran. I disagree strongly with their views on baptism and especially infant baptism and especially baptismal regeneration. But um, they're the ones talking about the proper distinction between law and gospel. So we're utilizing that to advance, well, to continue our series. All right, so are you ready? Here we go. I'm going to turn the volume down here because we're going to come in with their theme music as they're coming back from a break. Don't be afraid. You know the Ten Commandments. You know your sinners. And you know the gospel. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The word of the Lord endures forever. That's an excerpt from Take Courage, Encouraging Words for Discouraging Times from Pastor Matt Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. It's our Issues Etc. Book of the Month for June. You can find it at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040, and ask for the book, Take Courage, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for June. Make sure you understand that righteousness does not come from the law. The law 
condemns us and shows us our unrighteousness. Our righteousness does not come from our keeping the law or obeying the law. Our righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. And because it's an imputed righteousness, then you cannot look to practical righteousness to prove whether someone has imputed righteousness. That is just a logical, it just makes no sense. Hey, I'm going to look to your life and determine if you're saved. Well, I'm saved by an imputed righteousness. So how are you going to look to my life to prove that I'm saved? It's imputed. (laughs) If it's infused, then you can look to see if it manifests itself in practice because it's infused in me. But the entire, the whole Protestant Reformation came down to we believe we're justified by an imputed or by an infused. But most Christians today, whether they know it or not, they believe in an infused righteousness, not an imputed one. It's part four of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. One thing Walther does in these evening lectures is after he has exposited these things from Scripture, he takes up, and he does it in this case with the fourth thesis, he takes up passages from the Lutheran confessions to further explain his point. Yeah, he he wants to make sure that they realize he's not just spinning off his ideas here. He is trying to lead them into the way that the confessions of our church help us, they resource us to actually preach the good news. So he, he does, he turns to the symbols. Before he turns to them, though, I do want to pick up one thing that uh, I think is important. He gives an example from church history of how things sort of go awry with the growth of monasticism, particularly, he doesn't really say this, but there's like a shift in monasticism from where, if you can sort of see it at the beginning, this desire to sort of live heaven on earth, you know, to be in constant worship and prayer and praise and thanksgiving and and, and let it never stop. This sort of shifts to, especially, I think, in the Western church, they misunderstand what Jesus says to the rich young ruler. Okay, this is good. This is good. Now, if you study church history, the rise of monasticism, where everybody was running off to monasteries. Now, it's been said, it was, I think it was more like kind of a, just kind of a joke. But it was said at certain times that there are more Christians living in monasteries than there are living in cities. Now, a lot of people make a joke about that. And a lot of people say, oh, these people were running us to monasteries and try to earn their salvation. And, and we kind of look down upon it, condemn it and say, how foolish could they be? Had they not ever read their Bible? And I understand that we all, you know, try to act like we're so superior and we're better than them. But what I think it demonstrates is this. They read their Bibles. Now, obviously, they didn't have the scripture in their hand, but you get the idea. They heard the scriptures, and they heard commands like, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your body, with all your soul. Pray without ceasing. Meditate on God's word day and night. 
Study to show thyself approved. All of these scriptures, you cannot serve two masters. Forsake all that you have and follow him. Deny yourself. Die to self. They heard all of these scriptures and they were like, then I must obey them. Right? I'm not going to water them down going, well, you know, it just means read your Bible some. It just means go to church some. No, these scriptures are demanding a life 1000% dedicated to him. I'm denying self. I'm dying to self. So if I'm truly going to live this out in any way meaningful, then the only hope is to go live in a monastery where I can dedicate every waking hour to the things of God. Prayer, study, reading, meditation, serving, praising. I will. That's the only way I can fulfill the scriptures because if I take all the scriptures and everything they demand me do, I'm supposed to be meditating day and night. I'm supposed to be praying all the time. I'm supposed to be loving God above every single thing. I'm supposed to love God more than pleasure. If you take everything the scriptures tells us we are supposed to be doing, you could see why some would say, how do you carry, how do you do this? How do you do this with a family? How do you do this and go to work? How do you do this? And I'm going to join a monk. I'm going to go, I'm going to become a monk. That's the way to do it. They were taking the law seriously. Now the problem is what they should have realized is the law would have been, should have driven them to the point to say, I can't do this. I cannot do this, but Christ did it for you. It's to drive you to Christ so that you can trust in his obedience and then his righteousness is imputed to you. Now, it's still a call for us to pursue putting God first. It's a call for us to pursue meditating on Scripture. It's a call. We're still called to pursue it, but we, we realize that our salvation is not dependent upon it. And it's not a, a, it doesn't prove our salvation because again, if it was there to prove our salvation, you would all fall short because you don't meditate on God's word day and night. You don't pray without cease. You don't do, you don't even come close to doing these things. You don't love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You're constantly finding yourself serving two masters. Okay? You're, 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 where, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Look around, your heart's always in the wrong place because you treasure the wrong thing. We constantly are in, fall short of this. So they were trying to go. And I think this is where the law and God, I think monasticism is not what obliterated the proper distinction between law and gospel. Monasticism was proof that the idea of law and gospel had been obliterated. I think it's a symptom of the problem. It's not the cause of the problem. It's the symptom of the problem. Walter points this out. Jesus said, hey, if you would be perfect, go get rid of everything you have and come follow me. And Jesus did this, looking at the young man and loving him, because the guy had an idol. And what was the idol? His stuff. And he thought he'd kept all the commandments. And Jesus takes the first commandment basically and shows him, sorry, son, you haven't kept any of them this way. Because by breaking this one, you've broken them all. And if you don't hear that passage that way, if you hear it as, oh, wait a minute, a crushed, contrite sinner needs to go sell everything that he has and give it away to the poor and then come and follow Jesus by becoming a monk, then he'll have eternal life. Well, that's the state of many of the people who became monks, especially in the Middle Ages, the later Middle Ages. And it's the case with Dr. Luther himself. He became a monk in order to save his poor soul. He thought that's what he had to do. 
So uh, Walter encourages us to remember the agonies of our dear Luther, considering the darkness that reigned in his day. We must say, with compared to others, he had already gained a great deal of knowledge from the beginning of his career with the law and the gospel, but he didn't quite know how to distinguish them. And the result was when he heard that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, he heard that as law, as in it's bad enough that God gives us the law, but then in the gospel, he makes it worse. He demands even more of us. So like, oh, he hated the gospel. But of course, he didn't really understand what the gospel was. But when Luther begins to get this, when he sees that the gospel is not God telling you the kind of righteousness you need to come up with on your own, but the righteousness he wants to freely give to you, then all of a sudden the reformer has this brilliant light go through his mind. He runs through the whole scripture. He he recounts this in his preface to Romans, how he just chased through the scriptures thinking about the righteousness of God, the wisdom of God. It's like if he'd have paid attention to Chrysostom, he would have had this insight a long time ago because it's the same insight Chrysostom had in that passage that I read a few minutes ago. He began to see it's all about what God's giving. And Walter says the birth of the reformer dates from the very moment when Luther understood this distinction, when he realized, wait a minute, the gospel doesn't demand, the gospel gives. And the righteousness the gospel gives, everyone say it with me, class is an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. Meaning, by faith, the righteousness of Christ is accredited to my account, but I am still unrighteous. I am still a sinner, but I am perfect in Christ. In practice, I'm still going to fall short. The American church has flipped it around. No, by faith, Christ gives you a righteousness internally, and then you will be changed, and now you can keep the law, you can say no to sin, and you can say yes to God, and you can do it. And if you don't do it, it proves you never got saved, which is literally Roman Catholicism, right? Someone just said, and I'll quote, they said this in the chat, I love that. Remember the agonies of our dear Luther. Those agonies speak to us in some sense. We can relate and see the law at work through that story. Absolutely. You see the agony, the terror that Luther was in. Some people say, well, because he was crazy. No, no, no. He saw the law and realized, I can't do it. What scares me is not how upset Luther got. What scares me is how most Christians either think that they can do it that they are doing it and don't see how far, far short they fall of God's law every single day. Every time I read my Bible, I'm like, I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. I fall short of that. I commit that sin. I commit that sin. I'm guilty internally. I'm guilty externally. And every time it's like, woe is me. I am undone. My hope the gospel. Now, does that mean I just sit back and go, well, do what I want. Just speak the way I want. Who cares about corrupt communication? Think the way I want. Who cares about? No, I realize, man, 
I still am so far, thank goodness for the gospel, but because of gratitude, let me try to continue to work and fight against this sin and grow in grace and grow in practical righteousness, even though that practical righteousness will never be sufficient, one, to prove that I'm saved, because it will always fall short. And two, it's insufficient to save me because I'm not saved by what I do, can do, should do. I'm saved by what Christ did. And it makes me that much more grateful for Christ. But that your ongoing sin should constantly humble you as well. The law demands. If a passage is demanding something of me, it's law. If the passage is declaring to me God's righteousness, it's offering that to me as gift. And that really set Luther free. As it set him free, he began to teach it. And of course, the more he taught about it, the more it began to spread and the more people began to hear it and believe it. It's a wonderful thing. So we move to the the apology rather of the Augsburg Confession. Here you hear Melanchthon basically running right down the track that Luther had taught him to run down. He says, for rightly to understand the benefit of Christ and the great treasure of the gospel, which Paul extols so greatly, we must separate as far as the heavens are from the earth, the promise of God and the grace that is offered on the one hand from the law on the other hand. That's so crucial, right? If you're going to get what the gospel is, you can't mix into it the dictates of the law. The word of God preaches the gospel with ever so great comfort, but you're going to not obtain peace with it if you forget that the Holy Bible also contains passages of law, and then you come across the passages of law and you forget, oh, wait a minute, this is a passage of law. This is not a passage of gospel. Wait, this one's showing me my sin? This one's pointing me to my Savior? I need to know the difference between these two. And God uses both all the time in both Testaments with his people. The one, as I said earlier, to keep us humble and the other to keep us from despair, to preserve us from despairing of our salvation. But then after the apology to the Augsburg Confession, then Walther moves along to the formula of Concord. He goes to a passage in the Epitome where we read, We believe, teach, and confess that the distinction between the law and the gospel is to be maintained in the church with great diligence as an especially brilliant light by which, according to the admonition of St. Paul, the word of God is rightly divided. And the solid declaration, of course, repeats the same thing, goes a little further. As the distinction between the law and the gospel is a special brilliant light which serves to the end that God's word may be rightly divided and the scriptures of the holy prophets and apostles may be properly explained and understood, we must guard with a special care in order that these two doctrines may not be mingled with one another or a law made out of the gospel whereby the merit of Christ is obscured and troubled consciences are robbed of their comfort, which they otherwise have in the Holy Gospel, when it is preached genuinely and in its purity, and by which they can support themselves in their most grievous trials against the terrors of the law. I mean, to put it very practically, when you think about how you confuse them, 
it's whenever you try to make a bridge between them or join them together so that, do you remember this stupid song that used to be around when we were kids, Todd? Love, 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 love. The gospel in a word is love. Love your neighbor as your brother. Love, love, love. Do you remember that song? Vaguely, yes. Vaguely. <laughs> it's etched in my memory, sadly. But it's like, no, <laughs> what that should be is love, love, love. The law in a word is love. <laughs> love your neighbor as your brother. Love, love, love. That would be true. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God's love for you. In fact, St. John says it so clearly in First John 4, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and gave his only begotten son to be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. So, that's so true. Telling you to love people is not the gospel. That is the law because you're going to be like, well, I won't love them enough. Exactly. You are condemned. But God love people for you perfectly. In him, you then meet the requirements of love. Anything that tells you to do something is law. Anything that tells you what Christ has done for you is gospel. You must make this distinction. And you'll notice he's reading the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, the Book of Concord. Those are Lutheran confessions, Lutheran doctrinal statements. They're what they may be. I, I would have to look. They may be the only denomination that in their actual doctrinal statements actually have the proper distinction between law and gospel literally right there in them. So, I mean, that's, I love that about Lutheranism. I love, love, love that about confessional conservative Lutheranism is they maintain and understand this distinction between law and gospel. Just wish they didn't have baptismal regeneration and infant baptism in in it. And because I believe in some ways the baptismal regeneration blows everything up because at least how I was taught at least how I was taught as a Lutheran, is that, yeah, these babies were baptized, but they could lose their salvation. I'm like, oh my goodness. How can you believe you can lose your salvation and still maintain a proper distinction between law and gospel? Uh, Oh man, then I want to lose my ever living mind there and just like go crazy because that to me is a blitter. You're now making it a a law-based gospel because you can lose it. I'm like, oh that is so because, but they understand that they baptize these babies and then they grow up and they don't believe and they grow up and they don't care, even though they claim that their sins were washed away and they were regenerated. And no, either baptism saves them and they're saved, period, or they're not. And if they're not, then why are they not? Because based on what they do or don't do, like the whole thing just becomes a, a mess. But I do love the fact that, hey, the Lutherans have this. It's a treasure that everyone should greatly uh, learn from, and we should all learn to how to rightly divide the word of truth. And you could talk about all the different ways we should rightly divide the word of the truth, but one of the main ones and first ones is a proper distinction between law and gospel, because if you do not, the Bible is a closed book. You won't understand it. Those are two passages in the formula that are picked up. He gives more, though. 
goes back in Article 5 and says, Now, in order that both doctrines, that of the law and of the gospel, not be mingled and confounded with one another, and what belongs to the one may not be ascribed to the other, whereby the merit and benefits of Christ are easily obscured, and the gospel is again turned into a doctrine of the law, as has occurred in the papacy, and thus Christians are deprived of the true comfort which they have in the gospel against the terrors of the law. And the door is again opened in the church of God to the papacy. Therefore, the true and proper distinction between the law and gospel must, with all diligence, be inculcated and preserved. And whatever gives occasion for confusion between the law and the gospel, that is, whereby these two doctrines of the law and the gospel are confounded and mingled into one doctrine, should be diligently prevented. The damage that comes with the mingling of the law into the gospel is what he saw to be the key evidence of where the Roman church went off the rails. When he's talking about the papacy, especially talking about you go to the church and you hear sermons that are exhorting you for nothing but good works with no mention of what Christ has done for you. Now, you mustn't think that in all the years of the papacy, that's the way it was, that that's all you heard. There were always preachers who preached Christ and proclaimed the gospel. But what people didn't really do was say to the parishioners, you need to know that there's two doctrines in the Bible and that one is the law and one is the gospel. And when the law speaks, it condemns you and it will always condemn you. And even as a Christian, it will keep on condemning you. But there is the word of the gospel and the gospel absolves you and it puts you beyond the condemnation of the law by putting you into the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so this back and forth between the two doctrines was not clearly taught throughout the Middle Ages. Really, I think Dr. Luther was one of the most brilliant understanders of St. Paul in the years that followed the apostles. He got what St. Paul was saying on this because he actually just listened to what the Bible said and realized, oh, he means it. I need to have a righteousness that's better than that. I can't come up with it, but he can give it to me, the righteousness of Christ, his perfect obedience. Now, let me make this very clear. Protestants, non-Catholics, love to run around and condemn the Catholic Church. We don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to dead saints. We don't, we don't, we're not cannibals eating the body of Christ. And we just go and condemn and condemn and condemn and condemn Catholicism and condemn Catholicism and condemn Catholicism, talking all big and bad and condemn it, condemn it, condemn it, condemn it, condemn it. But while you're condemning it at the front door over on the side, you've opened the door and you're like, Hey, hey, Pope, come here, come here. Catholicism, come on in. Come on in. Right? I got them all confused. I, I want them to think that we're not Catholic. So I've condemned the robes and the lit and the liturgy and the mass. And I've condemned the sacraments. Oh, I, I made them really think we're not Catholic. But come on in. Come on in and bring in your obliteration of law and gospel because that's how we teach. When you obliterate law and gospel, you've just as well opened your door and brought in the Pope and you've reestablished Roman Catholicism in disguise as a Baptist church, Presbyterian, or whatever else.
You're just Catholics pretending not to be. Because Catholicism destroyed, in many ways, the distinction between law and gospel. And you get law, 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 law disguised as gospel. Well, guess what? That doesn't happen in not just the Catholic Church. That happens in churches all across the United States of America every single week. In my last live broadcast, I showed you a horrible example of it preached in a Southern Baptist church where he obliterates the proper distinction between law and gospel. So if you... I, I get so tired of all the debates with Catholics and we debate everything Mary, we debate we debate this, we debate that. They don't believe in the proper distinction between law and gospel. That's the issue. That was the issue of the entire Reformation. But for some reason you ask Christians today and they're like, oh, it's about indulgences or it's about the it's about imputed versus infused. It's about the proper distinction between law and gospel. I'm telling you, the Reformation failed. And most Christian churches today prove to you that Luther lost and Catholicism won. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. When we come back, there's a quote here from Luther where he talks about how it's impossible to maintain Christian doctrine as pure apart from the distinction of law and gospel. We'll get to it after this. It is impossible to maintain pure Christian doctrine without the proper distinction between law and gospel. You mess up law and gospel, you do not have pure Christian doctrine. In fact, you're very close to sliding off into something that's not Christian. It's something other than. It is a false gospel, which is anathema. And in our last live broadcast, go listen to it, the, the sermon by J.D. Greer, the J.D. Greer sermon part three. If that doesn't clearly show you what happens when you destroy the proper distinction between law and gospel, then I don't know what will. That is a complete example of it stopped being Christian. It's not even, what he's teaching is not even Christian. It's anathema because he obliterated the proper distinction between law and gospel. Without the proper distinction between law and gospel, you cannot understand the Bible, you cannot rightly read it, and you will not have pure Christian doctrine. That's why the proper distinction between law and gospel is so essential. Next time, we'll finish the very last segment here. Uh, okay, does that mean unsaved? Good, good question. Good question. Good question. This is what I would say. If we listen to the sermon that J.D. Greer preached, that is not salvation because he clearly makes it known that your salvation is dependent on what you do. So that can't be salvation because you're not trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Someone can be trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ right? Because that's where salvation is. It's your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But obliterate the proper distinction between law and gospel. Your salvation is not dependent on how theologically sound you are. Your salvation is dependent on the finished work of Jesus Christ. So if someone has put their faith in Jesus Christ and they're trusting in him and him alone for their salvation, that's where salvation comes from because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to them. It would just mean that they're no longer trafficking in they're no longer trafficking in pure Christian doctrine, and they may be preaching a gospel, and that gospel is anathema. If they're trusting—now, if they're believing in their false gospel, <laughs> which 
is they're looking to their works and not to the Christ, then they are anathema. Now, if they're, if they're just confused, but they still would, they're still trusting in Christ. The problem is there is like, we can't make that determination. Here's what I would point to people to. If, uh, if you give me a specific situation and I look at the person, my focus is, what are you trusting in for your salvation? And they say the completed, finished work of Jesus Christ and his imputed righteousness, then okay, that's salvation. If they say they're trusting in what they do, well, then that's a problem. Some cases, they're just theologically confused, like we've all been at different times in our Christian life, and I'm still theologically confused. I've never got, I still have things I haven't figured out and never will figure it out, and I know I will die still being wrong about many things, but I feel convinced that the proper distinction between law and gospel is the right way to think. So, what the key for salvation is, are they trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ? That's the key. That's the key. I'm not looking for a theological test, first and foremost. I'm looking for, are you trusting in Christ? Now, the theological t- test would come, what do you believe about Christ and what do you believe about God, obviously, if that makes sense. Now, J.D. Greer, if he believes the gospel he preached, well, that's a false gospel, and I would say that's anathema because he did not preach anything remotely close to a biblical gospel. It was so much workspace. It was it was it was better Roman Catholicism than Roman Catholicism itself. That's the issue. What are you trusting in? I'm trusting in the work of Christ, his imputed right, imputed righteousness. What what where is your confidence that you're saved? If you start pointing me to your works, that's where I get confused. That's where I'm going to be like, "Oh, there's a problem." Um Oh, well, it, 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 yeah, anyone who's teaching a false gospel is accursed. So if you're teaching a false gospel, my, my issue is if you're teaching it, then I'm assuming you're believing it. And if you're believing it, you're accursed because you don't have a, you don't have the right gospel. So anyone teaching a false gospel and believing that false gospel is accursed. I will always try to be understanding that someone could be saying something about the gospel and it just shows that they just don't understand. But when you really set aside the doctrine and say, let's talk, let's talk. And like, no, 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 no. I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And yes, I'm trusting in his imputed righteousness. Then I would be like, okay, okay. Well, the gospel you're teaching is accursed. But if you're trusting in the finished work of Christ, you're not even, you're not, your, your faith does not represent what you're teaching. I think sometimes there can be a disconnect between what people are teaching and what they're really trusting in for their salvation. They're teaching this, but it doesn't necessarily reflect. So I would always try to separate, okay, I heard your sermon, now let's talk. I would say J.D. Greer's sermon was a false gospel. And that gospel is anathema. If he believes what he taught, then I would say, according to scripture, he, he would be anathema or a curse. I try to make that distinction only because who am I to, I can't read inside a person. I can't read their mind or their heart. Someone may be teaching this, but when push comes to shove, they're like, no, 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 no. I'm not looking to my righteousness. I'm looking to the righteousness that's imputed. That's what, that's where salvation is found. I just know that sometimes you can teach something and I would hope that back when I taught lordship salvation, if someone would have said, push comes to shove, so where's your hope for salvation? I hope I would have said, in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, even though I would have been telling you, you better look to see what you're doing to prove whether you're saved. I hope I push comes to shove, I would have said, the finished work of Jesus Christ. I was just inconsistent 
and what I was believing for my salvation and what I was teaching other people to look to for assurance. Instead of pointing them to the gospel, I was pointing them to the law because I did not have a proper distinction between law and gospel. Therefore, my gospel was not correct. See, so I just want to make sure we see a distinction there. The teaching I can condemn. Here's what I would, I can always condemn a teaching. I can always condemn a doctrine based off scripture. Condemning a person is more complicated because you don't know everything going on inside a person. Sometimes we say and preach things, but we're not always consistent with what we're preaching with maybe what we really believe deep down. Someone could be teaching this, but if push comes to shove, they'd be like, no, I'm, I'm trusting in Christ. Um, yeah, sometimes their minds does twist things up because we all have a tendency to be inconsistency. Look, we were inconsistent because we don't know the proper distinction between law and gospel. So they think they're really preaching the gospel, not realizing that they're just, uh, they're corrupting it with the law because we're so law based. But sometimes when push comes to shove, you say, no, 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 no. Forget everything else. You, I'm looking at you in the face. When you stand before God, what is your hope of salvation? Christ, what is your, what gives you security that you're saved? Now, if they start saying, well, because I do this and I do that and do that, then I would get concerned because they're looking to the law to prove salvation. I said, no, my security is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I, I can't know that until I talk to a person. So I don't ever want to just judge someone externally. I can judge the doctrine. I can judge the theology. I can't judge the person because that requires knowing inside. People would have judged David's external action. They would have said he's he's going to hell. God says he's a man after God's own heart. So I always try to there can be confusion in teaching. There can be confusion. There's a level of confusion that obviously doesn't impact your salvation. Then there's confusion that would go to the very heart. You don't believe Jesus is the, the eternal son of God. You Maybe you don't believe in the Trinity. I think that's a major issue because then you have a false God. And clearly the big issue is you're not trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ for your salvation. If that makes sense. The doctrine is easy to condemn and criticize. The person, you don't know unless you talk to the person and they really reveal to you their heart and what they're really... And sometimes you have to say, well, that's beautiful that you believe that. Do you think you should possibly start teaching it? And they may go, well, what are you talking about? Like, look right here, exhibit number one. And maybe you would hope that they would be like, oh, wow, you're right. I've... I've messed it up. You would hope. But we're so law-minded that it's hard for us to see that. All right. I'll stop there. Thanks for those questions. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Please go listen to the J.D. Greer Sermon Part 3. Because I, as, as much as that series had nothing to do when we started with law and gospel, it ended being nothing more than an entire example of what goes wrong when you obliterate the proper distinction between law and gospel. Please uh, subscribe to the Issues ETC podcast and please find 
God's No and God's Yes, The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel by C.F.W. Walther. Please, 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 please find it. Start learning the proper distinction between law and gospel. Start learning it. Become a master of it. Become a master of it. And if you ever want to attend a confessional Lutheran church, if you go to the Issues ETC website, I think they have Find a Church. Um, they have Find a Church. They uh, they will give you the name of the confessional Lutheran churches in your area, and you can at least see what it's like to maybe hear teaching where they offer the proper distinction of the law and gospel. Again, I my problem with Lutheranism is the baptismal issue, but if you've just never heard that, all right? And if you live in an area with a, con- a Concordia Theological Seminary, that, that look for anything that they're doing because they may be doing lectures on the proper distinction between law and gospel. And if it's open to the public, you definitely would want to hear it because you can learn more about the proper distinction between law and gospel. All right, there you go. Thanks for listening. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a great day. And uh, I don't know what's on the plan for the rest of the day, but... Hey, always be looking because you never know when this microphone will be live and I will be on the air talking about something dealing with theology. Have a great day. God bless.